I remember the night in 1997 when I woke up to the terrifying sounds of gunshots. Rebels of the Revolutionary United Front were attacking my town in northern Sierra Leone. The entire town was thrown into chaos. In less than a minute, my life was engulfed in fright, panic, confusion, and the fear of death. I watched as families ran, leaving behind their loved ones. In the panic, many parents ran without their children. And many children were left to find their way out of the bombing and bombardment, while the unlucky ones were abducted by the fighters, drugged and given guns to fight. For me, it's now a story of the past. But for many of the world's most vulnerable children, this is the everyday reality of their life. I am Amara Bangura, and in this first edition of our CPS podcast, we'll start by looking at what our very own organization, the Delaire Institute for Children, Peace and Security, is doing to help end the recruitment and use of children in violence. That we just could not continue to use kinetic force against children without having other options of looking at how to make them ineffective without mm-hmm. having to, to destroy them. We'll hear from people with lived experiences who now want world leaders to prioritize the protection of children in conflict. There is no country without children that can progress. But when you recruit young people to the army, they will not have a future. They will be only uh, thinking of fighting. And when the children get spoiled, the country will not have a progress. CPS Podcast is brought to you by the Delaire Institute for Children, Peace and Security, a global partnership that is working to end the use of children in violence. This is a new platform to discuss new ideas on how together we can end this abhorrent abuse. First, we begin with South Sudan, a country that suffered years of brutal civil war in which, according to UNICEF, some 19,000 children were recruited and used during this conflict. Nayat Makoi Ayath is one of them. He joined the fighting forces in 1996 when he was just 11. For nine years, he fought in what he described as a brutal and turbulent liberation period of his country. Uh, Actually, I joined uh, when I was... uh 11 years old, because I was born in 1985, and then I joined in 1996, the Sudan People Liberation Army. We were so many, uh, in a range of uh, 3,000 in the area we were. Uh, Others were 15 years, as well others were 12 years, others were 10 years, and some were actually uh, 14, like that. Actually, I go voluntary when I lost my, my dad in the moment. I declared myself to fight for what my father was fighting for. Because I know my father died during 1994, pursuing Juba. When he died there, I have to decide what lost my dad. I have to pursue also. So the target for myself, I was fighting for what my father was fighting for, because I know my father was fighting for the freedom of the people. And if he die, I have also to go. 
I declared myself. Uh, in that time, uh, we have actually uh, get some of the difficulties because to join army at the age of uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, up to 14, uh, you, you, you live in a situation whereby you rethink of your family, you also think uh, of other uh, nutrition, food that you can eat, uh, but uh, such things, uh, they were not there. Uh, actually, also when you fall sick, no one can take care of you, of which uh, when you are in the same age, you cannot manage to control yourself in terms of uh, supports. Uh, there are a number of things that I can remember, and especially uh, the number one is, uh, for example, when you go for combat, and maybe you defeated the enemy, or if the enemy defeat you, the way you will be running, and you are not that at the age whereby you will be able to manage to escape. Or you may lose in the bush, you will be fearing of even animals or any other things. So such things were very complicated at the time. And also, if you don't know where to run to, because if you run for three days, four days, and you will not get water, also if you don't get some of the things to eat, you will also die. So these, these were a number of uh, disadvantages of being a child. And the reason why I leave the army, I have realized how much uh, age whereby if I continue in army, I will grow old without a future. The reason why I say so is because I have knew number of my colleagues who were not part of the liberation. They were in a school. They study and later when they study, it is them to visit number of areas. It is them to think of how to develop the nation. It is them to control everything. It is them to direct all the services to the people. And when I see my role is to remain in the army, I will not do anything better to the people. Because being in the army, I will only remain with the guns and protect people like that. And I will not do any other contribution. So I decide that I have to go for my future because I have done my fat. And I have also to resume the community in order to learn more about the culture. For the sake of today, uh, what I see to those who recruit children to the army is too negative to the levels we are in because the children are supposed to be given uh, a right to studies. For them to study, because they are the future of the country, there is no country without children that can progress. But when you recruit young people to the army, they will not have a future. They will be only uh, thinking of fighting. And when the children get spoiled, the country will not have a progress. Because when the old people are going, you become vulnerable. Well, it's not all doom and gloom. Ayad is now a fourth-year business administration student at the Dr. John Garang University of Science and Technology in Bo, South Sudan. He's hoping for a brighter future which would not include the use of guns. The story of Ayad, whom you've just heard, is not uncommon. In 1994, General Romeo Delia was the UN commander in Rwanda during the genocide against the Tutsis. General Delia was there to help prevent the massacre 
but his efforts did little to stop it. He was not given the tools to stop the killing, despite sending a message to United Nations headquarters in New York, warning of a Hutu plan to exterminate the Tutsis. The UN failed to act, and hell broke loose. In a period of only 100 days, over 800,000 people were massacred in Rwanda by ethnic Hutu extremists. That genocide was carried out with meticulous organization. Thousands of women were taken away and used as sex slaves, while children were armed with machetes to carry out the killing. General Delea returned to Canada from Rwanda deeply injured and consumed with images of the horror he had witnessed, especially those of children used in the violence. But that was just the beginning of a new idea. He went to Harvard University to research the use of children in conflict, and in 2010, he founded the Romeo Delea Child Soldiers Initiative, which is now the Delea Institute for Children, Peace and Security. His organization is now a global leader in preventing the use of children in violence. Last November, the Dlaia Institute celebrated its 10-year anniversary, and the executive director, Dr. Shelley Whitman, sat down virtually with the founder, General Romeo Dlaia, to reminisce about the early days of the organization, the challenges, and what they have achieved in the last 10 years. Welcome to this momentous occasion. How are you doing today? It is a beautiful sunny day here in, uh, along the St. Lawrence River, east of Quebec City. And uh, surviving the pandemic, I think, very positively by spending more time at home and having a chance to gather around uh, in a place that I've come to enjoy immensely. It's great to have you, sir. And I know that... Um... Today is a, is a big day for you and I in particular, and yes. conversation that I wanted us to have was a bit about thinking about the early days of when you first created what was then called the Child Soldiers Initiative. Maybe you can just relay for people what it was like back then, you know, what would it look, have looked like when you were working on this at that time? Well, the, the start point was, of course, that, that year or nearly a year I spent at, at Harvard and did the initial study. And I'm glad to see Ambassador O'Neill, who was part of that team of, of extraordinary students at the Kennedy School that joined me to do some of the initial work and in the field, too. But then, the, you know, the interesting part is, is that all these, I surrounded myself with colleagues uh, from the military mostly, uh, some people from the Pearson Center at the time, a couple of academics, yeah, but uh, it was a real theoretical model we were trying to figure out and, and in a very, very cold and sort of distant uh, dogmatic way of looking at this um, what we described as a military problem, a security problem. That was for sure. Uh, that was, happened until you appeared. <laughs> and, and I became this pain in your butt for the next 10 years. I, well, geez, or 11 years or whatever. Because <laughs> I still remember that uh, that meeting that we had in Phoenix. Uh, and imagine it was cheaper to have that meeting in Phoenix than it was in Ottawa at the time. And you, you were there, and uh, Ben even had his uh, guitar, uh, and you threw a wrench in the whole concept of how we were going about this because it wasn't feel practical. Uh, it, it, it just, and 
it lacked an ability to make that bridge between the security and the humanitarian side of that. Although there was certain rigor from a military perspective, it wasn't academically strong. And so after you threw everything out the window for us, uh, and but offered, offered uh, to take us in at Dalhousie uh, and maneuvered with the, the staffs there to find us a corner. And I got to tell you, it was a corner without a window for, for a while. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in fact, a, that is an important point, sir, to relay yeah. to everyone that maybe in the beginning for them to understand, I was the deputy director of the Center for Foreign Policy Studies at mm -hmm. Dalhousie, was how I first got involved with you to start to have these discussions, not with an intention to lead this organization you were in, but just to find a way to meaningfully get involved. And uh, I was literally in a the smallest office I think that exists at Dalhousie because it literally was a closet that got turned into an office at the end of a corridor. Yeah, and they, and they had a huge room uh, for for having people can have lunch and so on to <laughs> have tea. Uh, and uh, I still remember trying to convince the, the, the dean and the, the head of the department to divide it up so that we could use it. But uh, I think it's important to say though, uh, so that it took only nanoseconds to realize that it needed a, a strong leadership to move this thing on the ground with depth uh, on not only the experiential side that I had, uh, but actually the intellectual side that you were able to bring and to maneuver. So uh, that initial little team, the few of us, grew uh, out of nothing, literally. And And if you remember, I didn't even have the money to pay and uh, salaries or anything like that. We were scrounging money left, right, and center. And I was in the Senate trying to fiddle some, some research money. So uh, yeah. we had very little help at that time. But yeah. from that, there was, there was an ability to articulate that we had something that nobody else had. Yeah. And, and uh, that this, uh, this link that we were able to make with the security side of the house, the military, particularly the security, the police when they brought in, uh, and the humanitarian, but then also the academic intellectual side, because right from the very original start, having started at, at, a, at a place like Harvard, I felt it was absolutely essential that this was not an anecdotal-based NGO. This was an intellectually rigorous work piece of work that could be translated into uh, metrics that would provide guidance for policy that ultimately would interpret itself into the field and, and field applicable. Uh, and so that, all that, putting that together, that became your mantra. And uh, you, 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 you pulled it together uh, with my occasional visits only. The other point that you've raised that is an important one is that I do think that both you and I believed very strongly that we could make it work, that there was something exceptionally valuable about what this organization was trying to do and it was needed and it was necessary. And though you came at it from a military perspective and from a policy background, you know, because then you were in the Senate at that time and mine more from a, 
an experience of working in peace processes, working with NGOs, but also working in academic. And that was the mix that we felt was so important to carry through the organization to what it is today. It, it became fascinating to see people's eyes change when we explained how we looked at the problem, that we weren't looking at the back end of, of what child soldiers uh, look like once they had gone through horrors of being a child soldier in conflict, but that we were actually looking at the front end and that we wanted, we wanted to prevent these kids being recruited, let alone used. And there was an absolute essential need because I was working a lot on uh, the veterans and looking at the soldiers who had been psychologically affected, including my own injury, uh, to, to realize that we just could not continue to use kinetic force against children without having other options of looking at how to make them ineffective without <laughs> having to, to destroy them. Um, I know you and I could talk for, for days about these early days, or as you would call them, the war stories. Um, yeah. But <laughs> I would like to just ask you very quickly to maybe leave everyone here with one significant moment you can remember about some of our our work together we've traveled all over the world to many places mm. um, and not in luxurious conditions mm. um, so maybe you could maybe you can relay one of those um, special moments well being founder i'm gonna i'm gonna try to sneak in too very fast <laughs> one the the one is a field one and this is when you and i were in south sudan and uh, nobody was getting anywhere with the government and the forces and uh, even unicef and uh, we said we'll do something and we went into that uh, little little village uh, in south sudan that had been under duress and under fire and so on uh, and in the space of an hour and a half you and i uh, convinced those military and political people, and we ended up with nearly 300 children released to us there, then and there, which proved that we were able to convince people to, to, to move the RCs. And, and the two of us pulled that off at the surprise of, of the, the, in fact, the surprise of the world because it was impossible. The other, the other one was a high point when we, you and I briefed the chief of defense staff and the minister of defense and all the senior members of all the whole Ministry of Defense and, and, and military, all the stars you could see in, in, in the Milky Way were there. They had never done that before, brought them all together. And the two of us put on that PowerPoint and that cracked the code uh, to get a lot of work done. And lastly, certainly, the, the meeting with the Pope being called forward and having uh, done that event and seeing uh, that incredible man literally take notes and following that take action uh, to support us was a, a high watermark uh, from that. The rest is all so many experiences also with the staffs and the various staffs and me trying to, <laughs> to talk less army and talk more uh, civilian. All that was all part of it. That was the founder of the Dlea Institute. Lieutenant General, the Honorable Romeo Delea, and the Delea Institute's Executive Director, Dr. Shelley Whitman. We've learned a lot about the organization, its work, and what it has achieved in the last 10 years. 
Of course, there's so much to celebrate. But for now, let's move on to hear from the people who are doing the work in the field. Musa Donalbao is a major in the Republic of Sierra Leone Armed Forces, or RSLAV, seconded to the Dlair Institute. Bao left Sierra Leone in 2015, a country that also suffered years of brutal civil conflict, with significant number of children forced to join the ranks of the fighting forces. He took on the role of a child protection advisor in Somalia, where he honed his skill to become the Dlair Institute's most seasoned trainer. Now attached to the African Union as the regional training manager for Africa, Bao says he's inspired to do this work because his country learned the hard way how the use of children in conflict can ruin a country. These stories are everywhere around the world. Uh, what we saw here is that firstly, children were recruited and used by the various armed forces, particularly at the beginning of the war. Uh, we are people, in fact, we are voluntarily voluntarily donating children to become parties, uh, members of some armed groups, given the situation that we found ourselves in those days and how like uh, ignorant everybody was on what actually war is. So children, a lot of children were recruited and then looking at the impoverished communities that these rebels were, I mean, people wanted to find a way of survival or people were looking for their livelihood. And one of the ways of getting your livelihood was to become a member of some of these belligerent or armed groups like the RUF particularly and also the emergence of the civil defense forces. So all of these forces, we are armed groups, we are recruiting and using children. So these children, most of them we are used to in combat operations, direct combat operations. Some we are used actually as spies or reconnaissance. And at the same time, some were used as uh, perpetrators of some of the heinous crimes that you saw here in Sierra Leone. For example, amputating people, killing elders, committing issues of sexual offenses or conflict-related sexual violence like rape and so on and so forth. Assing, burning, of, burning and looting. I mean, these were some of the ways these children were used here in Sierra Leone. Okay, so when you go to other countries, you tell them these stories and you try to convince them to stop the use of children in conflict. What has the response been like, especially in places like Somalia, where you spend quite a lot of time? Well, now you can see what is happening in Somalia. Over the years, prior to our, to our engagement with Somalia, even the government armed forces, we are recruiting and using children that are under the age of 18. And they were even in denial on the conventional age that is agreed upon globally that is the age of 18 but today you now see uh, that the armed forces of somalia or the federal government are no longer recruiting children that are under the age of 18 and uh, largely they have been able to vet those ones that we are already recruited and some have been demobilized removed from the armed forces and now they are being rehabilitated and today some are now looking for another means of livelihood or they've been rehabilitated and reintegrated into communities. And now you can see the Somali Armed Forces or their Ministry of Defense and even the national security agencies are like um, uh, propagating the, the messages of preventing the recruitment. And uh, it's now a household discussion everywhere in Somalia. So I think uh, that is one impact because they've realized 
I mean, sometimes we see these things, but we don't recognize the dangers. And we see it, we don't look at the disadvantages. We look at it from one perspective. So it's always good to have the other side of the story, and which is what we continue to do. So when you are able to articulate the disadvantages and actually also project the need to protect these vulnerable future generations, and I think people will buy in because I guarantee you, every human being is having his or her own conscience. So if you bring that to people's attention in a genuine way, not only criticizing them, but trying to raise their awareness and bring their minds to the issues of protecting children, the importance and need, I think that is what is resonating more instead of condemning, condemning, condemning. Um, considering that you have a lived experience of um, living in a conflict zone and now you have actually been traveling to other conflict-affected countries, what inspires you to do this job? Well, one, I have a passion for humanity. Two, like I said, having reflection on what happened in my country, I think I should be part of this global campaign to end or bring to a progressive end to the recruitment and use of children as soldiers. All right. Musa? Yep. Uh, tell you plenty, thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Amara. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> that was Musa Donald Bau, the Delea Institute's regional training manager for Africa. We've learned a lot today. Thank you for being part of the conversation. And that's it for today's edition of CPS Podcast. We will be back again next month with another edition to learn about the experiences of women and girls in conflict and what the Delea Institute is doing to protect women in conflict. If you'd like to listen to this podcast again, please download it. And of course, please feel free to share it. This has been a Delea Institute production. Thanks to all those who contributed. Until we meet again, I am Amara Bangura. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day.